Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I would invite you to open up the text. Perhaps you'd like to read aloud with me, even to stand as an act of worship as we read together. So let's read from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, Select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is George Hidman. I'm at University Presbyterian Church. Your pastors have been such a gift to us, and we want to thank you. And they've been helping us get to know Jesus Christ better. And Jesus is changing our lives. Jesus is changing history. I wish I could be with you in person, uh, but something bigger is happening this year. COVID-19 is pushing us all online and pushing us together as kindred. When you look at the views of our web streams, 5,000 views every week representing people who are crossing lines of ethnicity to worship Jesus Christ and to work for the reconciliation of our city, and perhaps as many 10,000 people. They used to say 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, but not here not now, not with kindred. Our theme is beyond colorblind. This is not, I don't see color. No, this is help me see your color, my color, the beauty of color. And most of all, the beauty of Jesus as he is seen and will be seen by every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Our teachers for Beyond Colorblind have been his disciples, Philip and Paul, Peter, and from the Old Testament, Ruth. Today, our teacher will be Stephen. The story of Stephen is a short one in the Bible. We meet him here at Acts chapter 6, and he will be stoned in Acts chapter 7. Because Stephen is a man that believed the God of Israel did not belong just to Israel but that all people belong to him, all ethnicities, 
every culture. Now, Stephen did something that people hadn't seen before. And it changed the city and it changed history. We see this exuberant report at the conclusion of our incident, verse 7. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What Luke is telling us is that people are coming to know Jesus, that skeptics are becoming believers, that critics are becoming followers, that when people in Jerusalem saw what they saw, they said, we want what you've got, and they joined the movement. The question is, what did they see? What happened? Well, it wasn't so much that they had a meal together or that they shared their food or that they cared for widows. These things had already been happening, apparently. What happened was they resolved a cultural conflict. And that's our theme today, resolving cultural conflict. Now, I'm no expert on cultural conflict, but I can be a guide because there's deep and rich wisdom in this passage, and I will walk with you as we walk with Stephen through ancient Jerusalem in a day of cultural conflict. As we do that, my role will be to help you identify three steps that you can take to be someone who resolves cultural conflict well. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Our first step is this. Your first step is a step towards Jesus. Stephen is a follower of Jesus. We see this in verse five. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. It means he walks with Jesus. He surrendered to Jesus. His teacher is Jesus. His hope is Jesus. Jesus is at the center of Stephen's life. And because of that, He's a man who is able to walk into the center of cultural conflict as an agent of change. This is so simple. Even our children understand this. I wonder, boys and girls, if you've ever had a conflict with a sister or a brother. I remember when I was a little boy, I was building a city out of blocks. It was a great city. I had an airport and a library. And then my sister, little sister, came storming into the room and just tore it to pieces. First I screamed, then I cried, then I took a block and I raised it in my hand. Now, what would happen if Jesus walked into the room at that point? See, that's what's happening here in Jerusalem. There's a conflict in the city. It's cultural conflict. Back 350 years, a man named Alexander the Great, a Greek conqueror, swept across the ancient world on his horse, Bucephalus, and turned everything Greek. Soon after that, the Greeks would come to Jerusalem, the city of the Jews, and some of the Jews would assimilate to Greek culture. Some of them would resist Greek culture and maintain cultural distinctiveness. And now in Jerusalem, at Stephen's day, you have a divided city, a conflicted city. There are those whom Luke calls Hellenists, And there are those whom Luke calls Hebrews. They're all Jews, but they're two different cultures of Jews. The Hellenists are those who speak the Greek language. They eat Greek food. They pray to a God who listens in Greek. The Hebrews are people who speak Aramaic as a language. They read a Hebrew Bible, and they pray to a God who listens in Hebrew. They don't get along. 
And they've tried all the usual solutions. Nothing's worked. Not until now. Not until Jesus. Jesus is changing history. In college, this is what drew me to Jesus. I was struggling in my faith. I was surrounded by brilliant people. For some reason, they sent me to an Ivy League college. And one night, I remember a lecture by a, a, a visiting scholar, a Danish man, a photographer named Jacob Holt. He showed us these pictures which depicted racism in America like a gut punch. And I started looking for solutions. Took all kinds of classes in history and economics and sociology, African-American studies. And I, I, I was surrounded by even more brilliance as I did, but no actual solutions until I turned to Jesus. Jesus who said, love your enemy and forgive your brother. Jesus who said, blessed are the poor and the last shall be first. Jesus who elevated women and touched the lepers. Jesus the Jew who celebrated Samaritans and healed the children of Rome. Jesus who sent his followers to the world with good news for the nations, for the ethnoi or all ethnic people. I came to believe that Jesus is changing history. I jumped on my bike, I rode across town, and I, for the first time in my life, I had meaningful relationships with people in the African-American community. Jesus. If you want to resolve cultural conflict, I urge you to consider Jesus. See, the problem with the, the secular approach is we, we all want to say, your tribe shouldn't hurt my tribe or that tribe. But if there is no universal moral standard that's greater than my tribe and your tribe, then how can we say you should or shouldn't do anything? You see, if what we call universal human rights are just tribal rules, then the tribe with the most power is the tribe that makes the rules. Christopher Hitchin, the intellectual, respected thinker, who's no fan of Jesus, acknowledges the problem. He writes, how do I know there are such things as human rights? I don't. I don't know there are such things. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. You see, but what Jesus claims, what Jesus claims is that he is God, that he is the universal moral standard become flesh and blood, that God himself has visited this dodgy planet and entered into the primate species, not just to enlighten us or to give us a set of instructions to get this right, but to be the primary agent of transformation. Jesus has entered into history to transform it. Jesus claims to be the universal moral standard, which is the basis for resolving cultural conflict. Ronald Osborne, the philosopher in his recent book, Humanism and the Death of God, traces our belief in universal human rights globally back to Jesus and specifically to the claim that God became human in the person of, quote, a poor manual laborer from a defeated backwater of the empire who was tortured to death by the political and religious authorities of his day. This is where they come from, from the cross, from the crucified son of God, Jesus. 
And now he's walking around, risen from the dead, acting on our lives, Jesus. And Stephen knows it. You see, Stephen knows him. He's walking with Jesus, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke's telling us. And that's the first step toward resolving cultural conflict, stepping towards Jesus. Okay, now your second step is a step into gracious community. Gracious community. See, Stephen is a follower of Jesus in a gracious community. Again, let's look at verse five. What they said pleased the whole community and they chose Stephen, Luke writes. Pleased the whole community. Gracious community. And we wanna notice two things here about this community. First of all, these people are people who step into conflict as a community. They step into conflict as a community, almost as though they welcome it. And here's the insight. It takes a community in conflict in order to see the gifts that it's been given. In the story, it's the conflict that makes the invisible gift visible. Let's back up. What what happened here? Well, apparently... The church in Jerusalem at this time had some kind of a program for widows who had economic hardship. They would distribute food to these widows. And one day someone said, hey, you know what? I I noticed that this widow doesn't seem to be getting as much as the other ones. Why? I don't know. And then someone else said, hey, you know what? This widow doesn't seem to be getting as much as the other ones either. And, And nor does that one. And they started to see this this pattern, right? This widow and that widow and that widow. And you know what? They're all Hellenists. They're all Greek-speaking Jews. So wait a minute. We hadn't noticed this before. And the, the, the Hellenists grumble and they have this conversation and this conflict breaks out, Luke tells us. Apparently, they were Hebrews who were running this program and they had overlooked Now, that's the word that that Luke uses in verse 1. It's translated neglected. They had overlooked or they had neglected, but they hadn't seen these Hellenist widows. And, And that's what happens with ethnic difference so often. We just don't see. We just can't see. Now, this is the problem of colorblindness, right? To not see your color is to not see your culture, is to not see you. But in a community that steps into conflict, the invisible becomes visible, the unseen becomes seen. And so the conflict is good. It has a productive outcome. Now they haven't resolved this conflict yet, but they're seeing the cultural richness in this community, right? They're going, oh my gosh, there are Hellenists here. Oh my gosh, there are Hebrews here. We hadn't realized it before, but Jesus is leading a multicultural movement. See, they see, they see each other in this moment. I see you, you see me, we see him. That's a good thing. And it comes out of conflict. So these are people who step into conflict as a community, and it's good for them. The other thing to notice here is that this is a community that walks in grace. So important here. This community walks in grace with one another. Notice how they handle intent in particular, because this is where we so often get hung up, intent. 
I mean, when you see a problem, you naturally question intent. You know, why do they, why did they do that? It's particularly the way we respond to leaders, right? When we're not in the, in the know, we go, why, why do they do that? Why do they make that decision? We're, we're questioning their motives. We're saying there must be some intent here, right? But not in this community. They don't do that. Here, it's grace. They don't accuse their leaders. They don't assign motives or negative intent. They don't say they must be doing this because they're biased. This is discrimination. This is racism. This is hate. No, there's none of that. They give one another the benefit of the doubt and they talk it through. And that's what the dialogue, you see the quotation marks there between verses two and four. There's a conversation that happens. It's a gracious conversation. The, the community comes and, and the apostles or the leaders in this community have an opportunity to explain themselves, to say what their intentions were in allowing this problem to develop. And what they say essentially is, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You know, we've been so focused on the teaching of God's word, we didn't even notice this problem. But, but, but our calling is to teach God's word. That's what Jesus has impressed upon us. We, we have the gospel as stewards and, 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 that's, and that's a full-time job. So what they're saying is this was our intention. Our intention was not to exacerbate this division this cultural divide. No, it's to, it's to be good stewards of the call that we've been given. So their intentions were good. They were innocent. They participated in this conflict and the problem, but they were innocent. They were not the source of the problem. And that's so important for, for us because cultural conflicts inevitably are complicated. And it's so important that we believe the best about one another, that, that we enter into this conversation, these kinds of conflicts with the spirit of Jesus in us, with his spirit, with humility and empathy, with gentleness and patience, with an eagerness to forgive and to willingness to be forgiven with, with grace in a word. By the way, let me just say, here's how you know that their intent was good. It's that they responded is that when the problem came to their attention, they addressed it, they acted. That's so important for us. Verse eight tells us that Stephen is a man full of grace and power. He's full of grace and power. That means this is the kind of grace that makes a difference. He's got grace and action, grace and transformation, grace that takes action to bring positive change. See, grace will change the way we look at each other's one another will ascribe good intent, but it also changes the way that we live with others. We begin to act to make their lives better. This is so important for us in cultural conflict. If you're searching your own heart in a conflict and wondering whether your intentions are good or not, look at your response. Ask yourself, what steps have you taken or are you going to take as a reaction to your new awareness of this problem. The question's not gonna be so much, did you cause the conflict? Because maybe you didn't. But when you once become aware of the conflict, did you act? Conflict and grace, we need them both. They have them in this community and we need them. There was a study released in January in America that shows us that we're not doing as well as we think we're doing in cultural conflicts. It was put out by an organization called Bright Beam. And they looked at educational disparities across the country and they found that educational disparities across ethnic divides are worse in progressive cities in America. Progressive cities, yes, including Seattle. 
Why? Well, maybe because in conservative cities where there's conflict over ethnic differences, people become aware of the problem. But in progressive cities, there's an assumption that we've handled that here because we understand those problems. And, and that assumption hides the problem. And there's no conflict to reveal it. See, conflict is so important because it makes the unseen visible. And grace. One of the things that I find so helpful about Sarah Shin's book is what she has to say to white people. And as you know, she is a Korean American. And she says about white people, one of the most unpleasant people to be around is the angry white person who is furious at his own people for not getting it. You know, and we, we've seen that. And that's because a person doesn't have grace and they become angry. And they don't know what to do with the, the pain of, of cultural division. And no, instead, Sarah Shin says, you know what? We don't need your anger. It's not helpful to us. We don't need your shame. It's not helpful to us. What we need is for you to gather with us around Jesus, who knows what to do with both anger and shame. He takes it to the cross, you see, and that's unique. Well, this is what Stephen's done. He stepped into a gracious community. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen. That's the second step in resolving cultural conflict. And there's one more. Maybe it's the hardest of all. Your third step is a step to empower others. See, Stephen is a follower of Jesus in a gracious community that empowers people. Listen to the 12, the apostles in verse 3. Therefore, friends, they say, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. Select from among yourselves seven, whom we may appoint to this task. This is the action they take. This is what they do when they become aware of the problem. This is how they address the conflict. They empower people. The unseen people. They empower the community, gather them together, to empower leaders. Choose seven from among yourselves. They put their power into the hands of others. This is the 12 empowering another seven. Do you see this? Now, let me just say, there are two mistakes that are so common. One is to assume that when there's a problem, there's a problem of intent. And we've already talked about that. But the other is to assume when there's no problem of intent, there's no problem. But there is a problem, isn't there? There's still a problem in Jerusalem. But we have to be careful about this because there's a tendency for us to say, well, if there's no problem with my intent, then there's no problem. See, I'm not a racist. This is not my problem. End of story. No, not end of story. The problem is real. People are still unseen in Jerusalem. Widows are still hungry in Jerusalem. The system needs to change in Jerusalem, in the church. And I want to say to you, if the people who are not racist will not use their power to make a positive change when there is a problem, who else will? It's up to us. And this is the change they make, and it makes real change 
because they empower others. Now here's the kicker. Who are these seven? Just look at those names again. Who are these seven? Now, let's not get hung up up, up on gender here because soon uh, they're gonna appoint women to this same role, including a woman named Phoebe, whom I've told you was the one who got to read the book of Romans uh, to the church in Rome. But what you wanna notice is culture. Look at these names. These are all Greek names, every single one of them. I mean, including the last, Luke delights to tell us that Nicholas, he's not even a Hebrew by birth. He's a convert to Judaism. He's full-fledged Greek. These are all the unseen people. These are all the people who had suffered because their widows weren't getting enough food. These are all Hellenists. Not a single Hebrew. Look what the community does. Oh my gosh. Now the message here isn't about assimilation. It's not, okay, you Hellenists are welcome here in our Hebrew community. Come on in and we'll show you how to do things the Hebrew way and we'll show you how you can become good Hebrew followers of Jesus. No. And the unintended message oftentimes of many churches is this. Hey, welcome. Come on in. We're a multi-ethnic church. Uh, We'd love to have you part of our community. We'll teach you how to sing our songs. We'll teach you how to eat our food. We'll teach you how to serve our people and become just like one of us. That's not what's going on here. No. The message here is you show us what it means. You show us what it means to follow Jesus in a community of Hellenists and Hebrews. That's what's happening That right there is the moment that they crossed over from an us versus them world into a world in which they say, you help us become a better we. And Stephen is one of them. Stephen is one of these new leaders. So what's about to happen is this. Simon Peter, you know Peter. Simon Peter is going to lay his hands on Stephen. Simon Peter, the Hebrew, will lay his hands on Stephen, the Hellenist. Shimon will put his hands on Stephanos. A Hebrew with hands on a Hellenist. These hands, these hands could be the hands of a Nordic on a Jew, the hands of an Israeli on a Palestinian, the hands of a Japanese on a Korean, the hands of a Sri Lankan on a Tamil, the hands of Hutu on a Tutsi, white hands on a black head. Or children, if there are any still in the room, these are the hands of a brother on a sister. Not to push her away, but to pull her in and to say, what would you build with these blocks? And can I help you build that? This is what the story of Acts is all about. Jesus had said it at the very beginning of the book, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Receive power. This is a community that is so eager to empower others because this is a community that knows that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Not just institutional power, yes, but more than that, power that comes from heaven. 
That moment when Peter puts his hand on Stephen's head, he's saying, to Stephen, will you lead us? And he's saying to heaven, will you empower him to do so? This is a community that empowers the other. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. That's the story in Acts chapter six. And that's the story today. If you wanna be part of it, there are three steps you can take. You can become a follower of Jesus in a gracious community that empowers people. That's how cultural conflict gets resolved. In Jesus, God has reconciled the world to himself and he has given you and me the ministry of reconciliation. I can't think of anything the world needs more than that now. I can't think of anything that will draw people to Jesus more than that now. And that's what we're doing. That's what Kindred is all about. If you're new to Kindred, join us. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is your history. You are the creator of all. You are the redeemer of all. You know our names and every fact of our lives better than we know ourselves. And you love us and you've drawn us into your love for all of creation, the world, all of the richness of the people that you made. Thank you for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for his ongoing work in the world and the ability to participate. We ask your blessing on ourselves and one another, on those who are like us and those who are different, and pray that someday we will prove to have been prepared for that moment when every tribe and tongue and people and language gather around the great throne of Jesus Christ and say, he is worthy and hallelujah, and you are holy. It's in his name and for that moment that we pray. Amen.